fresh from winning the 2022 Formula Drift Pro Series is Frederick Aspo's GR Supra. We're here with Stefan from Papadakis Racing who's built and runs this car to find out a little bit more about what goes into it. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So Stefan, you're obviously for a start no stranger to drifting the most successful team I think in Formula Drift history is that correct? That is yeah we've yeah we've had a few wins. Now we've talked to you before on our podcast in particular around the development of your four-cylinder engine that you're running in Ryan Turk's uh, Corolla this year and you've you've got a lot of experience with that. This time you've built a bigger car a Supra with the original B58 engine so I'm interested at this point the Supra is definitely not new but when you first started getting involved there wasn't a lot of aftermarket support for the B58. What made you decide to go down the path of being a pioneer with that platform rather than maybe converting to something conventional and understood like the older 2JZ? So we work with Toyota and the GR Super was their new product and the B58 is the engine that came in it. And so right when the car came out, there was a lot of frustration. People wanted, I think, a different engine for some reason. And so for us, a team that is going to run that new car, I felt like it was important to show what that engine can do. So we did take on a bit of a challenge, but also it was a little bit scary because we didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but that's fun for me. And the profile of the engine was, you know, three liter inline six, modern technology, good horsepower, okay horsepower from the factory. So we had some hope going into it, but it really was sort of a, a dark alley we were walking into. I mean, I think people hold on to the older generation of engines that they've known and loved. We see it with the 2JZ. It was no different when uh, Nissan went to the VR38 and all of the RV fans sort of were, were crying out about that. So at some point, you do need to realize that time's moved on. And modern technology in these engines also tends to improve the breed. One of the potential concerns I would have is obviously the older 2JZ used a cast iron block. Better arguably for strength. Uh, this is a more modern engine with an alloy block. Was the strength of the alloy block a, a limiting factor for you and the power you needed to make to be competitive? No, the, what we found is the modern aluminum blocks can be at least as good in power handling capability as the older cast iron stuff. Just like the four-cylinder we run, it uses, we'll run a thousand horsepower with a stock sleeve 2AR block. So for the 1200 that we make in the GR Supra B58 engine, it's still a stock sleeve. We don't even touch the bores because it comes with a plasma sprayed liner on it that we haven't been able to duplicate here. So what we do is we always use a new block. And so it's a little bit more challenging to do because you need newer components, but that has been a very reliable setup for us. It handles the power really well and we have really uh, good ring sealing. So does that cause a little bit more complexity around choosing an aftermarket piston? I'm assuming you're no longer running the factory pistons in this, in that when we go to a 2618 forging, for example, the piston to cylinder wall clearance is, is always going to be a little greater than on a, a factory cast piston. 
Uh, obviously, as you're saying, with the, the spray coating on these bores, you don't have the ability to bore and then hone to a finished size. So is it working really closely with your piston manufacturer to make sure the finished size of the piston will give you the clearance you need? That's exactly what we did. So we worked with JE on this. I decided that we wanted to use the factory uh, ring set, factory bore, obviously, and asked JE to design a piston around those limitations. And what was neat was the ring pack that is specced in this, the B58 is actually a really good ring pack. So that was, it was kind of a win on every, the block was really good. The cylinder wall lining is a steel, it's like steel plasma sprayed onto the aluminum block. So it's actually ferrous, like the magnet will stick to it. And somehow they're able to get the steel to stick to the aluminum block. It's, it's amazing technology. And there are some other benefits, like it's a really thin coating or liner that's, I think it's like 20 or 30 thousandths thick. So under a millimeter thick. And so that helps in cooling. Some of the tricks that JE did was some coating on the side of the, uh, the skirts of the piston. And it was pretty much a slam dunk right away. Even now we're using the same uh, general piston design and clearance uh, that was originally developed. You're at 3.2 with, with this engine. And I mean, it's a six cylinder engine, reasonable capacity. So in terms of outright stress, making 1200 horsepower, probably not overly great. In terms of making the power, the, the bottom end's really there to support that. It's really in the cylinder head and the turbocharger. The cylinder head first, were there any sort of restrictions or problems with that head that needed to be addressed to get that sort of flow out of it? I know that the earlier uh, B58 heads had sort of a Siamese exhaust port, so talk to us about what goes on there. So the cylinder head that originally used, yeah, had an integrated exhaust manifold. So it had only a six-cylinder engine, but only two exhaust ports, and they were both quite small. And so that was really the limiting factor, especially with higher RPM. So we really needed to boost it a lot to get to the 1,000 horsepower mark. Once uh, the 2021 Supras came out, they had a six-port cylinder head, and it unlo unlocked like 300 horsepower at like 7,500 RPM, 8,000 RPM. So everyone was pretty thankful when uh, when Toyota did that. Yeah, that was a, a, a big increase for especially high RPM. 3,000 RPM, it didn't make that much of a difference, but high RPM for sure. We work with Supertech, and they already had a valve spring retainer combination that they had built for the B48 BMW engine. And that kit worked perfect and didn't have to be adapted in any way. You just order six cylinders worth instead of four. So Supertech already had a sorted out a valve train option for us. So that was a slam dunk there. Uh, we were worried about the Valvetronic, the adjustable rocker ratio intake being an issue, but we just locked that at maximum lift and that's been solid. And so now this year we've actually kept raising the limiter up and we're up to 8,900 RPM with the engine. And it's been, uh, the cylinder head has been one of the things that's been extremely reliable. The short block, the block itself has been strong and reliable. We've had some bearing issues with some of the, there's like this orange coating that they put on the bearings, I assume for some of the start-stop function. And they've been a bit unreliable in our application. So we've gone to the aftermarket ACL and King bearings with good luck. In terms of life expectancy between servicing on an engine that's being used in high-level competition like this, you know, what sort of regular maintenance is being done and, and how long does the engine last before it needs a full teardown? Maintenance would be oil and filter pretty much every weekend. We'll look at the filter a couple times a weekend just to see if there's anything on it to try to catch something ahead of time. Rebuild-wise, we're not really wearing these things out, man. We're usually breaking in them before something happens. So we have had some bearing issue failures. The B50 is interesting because 
the oil pump has a variable displacement volume and is controlled by a solenoid. And so the factory controls it in some way, and we were controlling it with our ECU. And so you can control the amount of oil pressure you have by changing the displacement of this pump. But it was inconsistent, and we weren't able to get it what we wanted to. And I think that may have led to some of the short block issues and the bearing issues that we've had. But since then, we just leave it unplugged. And it defaults to 90 PSI all of the time. So at idle, running the car, every it's just always 90 PSI. So, so a little bit too much maybe down low, but perfect when it's actually being run hard? Yeah, and that was my thought. But then I started thinking about too much in what aspect? Like we don't really care about efficiency. Yeah. So if it's a little bit more parasitic loss, then that's okay. And since then, it's been very reliable. And what's interesting as well is we use the factory oil pan, the factory oil pump pickup, all unmodified and for all the stress in the rpm that we put at it it does great so it's pretty amazing design do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com free and start developing your own skills today i mean i guess a lot of people would think that drifting doesn't actually result in in high forces on the car around the the particular judge section but is that incorrect Oh, yeah, I'd say it's probably one of the hardest loaded. These guys are sitting at the rev limiter at full power or just below the rev limiter at full power for like 10 seconds at a time. It's crazy. You know, they're just going. It's like a tractor pull sort of setup. So it's really hard on components. It can be, it shows you any kind of weakness because you're not just hitting RPM and shifting and shifting. You're sitting there loaded at an RPM. So if you've got any kind of oil starvation issues, it's going to show because there's that certain amount of time it has to really cause an issue, fuel, starvation, all of these things. So we have to have all of the different systems really tight <laughs> and figured out uh, in order to have a good reliability. I mean, on that point, a lot of people would on face value think just reaching to the top shelf and going with a dry sump system off the bat would be a guaranteed solution to any potential oiling problem. So interested to know why you persevered or tested out the factory system obviously found it worked. Yeah, so we had a limited amount of time and we're developing an engine and a car and uh, and everything. So we had to pick our battles. And the hope is that I've always tried to keep it as simple as possible. And so looking at the oiling system and seeing that it was a remote pump, it's not a it's not crankshaft driven directly. It has a chain, it's slightly down geared, so it's a little bit slower than the crank. And in other applications, other engines, like in the Honda K motors and stuff like that, they're pretty reliable. So the hope was that at high RPM, this would also be reliable, and that turned out to be the case. I mean, if you don't need to go to the expense of a, of a dry sump, then, then happy days. Now, moving on to the turbocharger, Borgwarner Turbo, what's the specific model of that? So we'll switch between the 9274 with a 10, geez, I think it's 105 or something like 10 turbine housing. That's when we're using the three liter engine on the shorter tracks. And then when we go to like the big tracks, the big bank tracks, and we have like the 3.2 liter engine in there. We'll use the 9280 turbo with, again, the, the 10, I think it's the 105. Uh, I forgot the... The uh, engineer will let us know if you're wrong. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Borg Warner EFR turbos have been great. We ran a dual tile wastegate setup on it. And we regulate the boost versus uh, throttle position. And so at low throttle position, he likes to have a little bit less boost. So we have this bigger range that we, we do run with the boost levels. And so if you look under the hood, you'll see like multiple AEM solenoids to control it. 
And one is set up in the traditional way where it bleeds off from the top of the gate, that reference line. And the second one actually bleeds off from the bottom. And so we have a strategy where instead of a, like a four port setup, that we found this to be much more reliable and easier to tune with dual solenoids. Dive into that a little bit more detail. So for those who are listening and really aren't picking up the pieces here, one of the problems with the pneumatic wastegate is if you want to, I don't have a clue on the actual numbers, but if you want a 15 PSI minimum boost, you put obviously a spring in that's going to achieve that and that's the lowest you can get the boost. But because of the exhaust back pressure trying to force the, the wastegate open, uh, particularly at higher RPM as that boost comes up, that tends to limit how far you can go in terms of the upper boost. And conventionally maybe you might get between maybe 15 and maybe 25, maybe 30 PSI. But if you want a, a massive range, that four port solenoid tends to be one of the solutions. I've found personally that that results in really poor resolution. It's really hard to actually get stable boost even though you've got a wider range. So your solution with multiple solenoids is a way of getting around that? That's right. That's, that's, and our engine combination does have a lot of exhaust back pressure because we try to use the smallest turbine housing that we can get away with to have the best response with some sacrifice of high RPM power. But that exhaust back pressure tends to make it harder to raise the boost. But we will bleed the reference off to the bottom of the gate as well as the top. Now, in terms of the, the sizing of the turbocharger versus the engine, I mean, that's quite an extreme, oh, we're going to go to this track, let's put the small motor in it or the big motor in it. I'm assuming you're matching the turbocharger there to the smaller or larger engine capacity just to keep that response. And I'm guessing also you don't need the outright top-end power on some of the shorter, tighter tracks. Is that the sort of basis of those decisions? has to do with reliability and keeping the, the engine together. We basically have, I always have, couple of parallel engine setups one is the one that we know really works well and that's the three liter setup and then we've gone to the stroked setup that has been less reliable trying to get a crankshaft that's stiff enough at the rpm that we're running again we were having some main, some main bearing um, and rod bearing issues trying to get that worked out so i mean ideally you'd use the biggest engine uh and then suit the turbo to the right track but sometimes we're putting the reliable engine that we know is going to work really well that maybe the shorter tracks we don't need 1200 horsepower let's just put in the setup we know we're going to get through the weekend and then we'll continue to develop the higher horsepower engine on the side and sometimes put that back in now in terms of that horsepower you've mentioned sort of 1200 when it when it's all in and i mean i think again for those sort of casually watching we've seen the power levels in formula d sort of climb year by year is there an end to this is more power always beneficial or is there a limit where more power is just going to end up in more tire smoke more power will end up in more tire smoke which can be a detrimental because your tires won't actually last two runs so by the end of the second run your grip is so low that you're less competitive so we're balancing tire uh, endurance with power with also gear ratio so Kind of the holy grail is usually a, a really high horsepower engine that has really good throttle uh, modulation for the driver. And then a lot of grip set up in the car, a lot of rear grip. And the driver can then go quick and drive quick around the track. And then when he wants to have less grip, get in the throttle and get more tire speed and then kind of lose some of that grip depending on his throttle. But in order to do that, you have to have a pretty long gear with a lot of tire speed. So you need a lot of horsepower to then be able to get that tire speed up. So it's this combination all of those things. And if you have everything really worked out and also on a high grip, long track, the tires won't even last two runs. 
which is obviously a, a critical thing to, to manage there. Now, in terms of the throttle modulation, which you've mentioned there, this is something a lot of people overlook. If, if you aren't modulating your boost target relative to throttle position on a, a high-powered turbocharged engine, the problem is the turbos are so good at making boost that even when you back your throttle down to 50 60%, you've probably almost got the same boost, and therefore the actual torque and power of the engine don't drop off. So that's the driver behind having that throttle target-based boost. That's right. Yeah, and we run relatively small uh, throttle bodies as well. The drag racing guys run giant 100 millimeters, and we found that to not necessarily even make more power and makes the drivability terrible. So we run the smallest throttle body that we can get away with to make the power that we want to have the best resolution for the driver. In terms of the boost pressures, could you give us some indication of, of what the minimum and maximum levels you, you tend to run would be? Yeah, so maximum has been 2.3 bar. So what is that? 34 PSI-ish. And at that point, we're just running out of turbocharger like that. And we're also making the power that we want. And low end would be, oh, geez, I want to say 15 PSI. No, maybe more than that. 15 to 18, so 1.2-ish. Right, let, let's talk about the, the rest of the package. And something we, we sort of see in most of these professionally built drift cars now is the, the cooling package is always moved to the rear of the car. And can you give us a, a reason why that is? Is it sort of a, essential for packaging? Is it weight distribution or combination? So uh, several. So one is we like to get parts that could be damaged out of the front of the car. So uh, getting into a part of the car where if the car gets into an act, gets into somebody, you're not, you know, leaking water and you're not damaged. So that's good. The more rear weight bias can help a bit to help more rear grip and more cooling system capacity. Actually, we can put a larger radiator back there. There's extra fluid in the lines that go forward and backward to give a little bit more of a buffer uh, for cooling. I mean, ultimately as well, these cars sort of spend a lot of time sideways. So airflow through the cooling system, is that a challenge as well, getting the airflow through? We need to have a good size inlet for it, but really it's all fan-based. So we run I think we have three or four fans on this car. So a lot of fan power and uh, CSF does our radiators for us and uh, spec'd out a core that was actually thin in cross-section and then large in surface area. And we found that to be the best for lo relatively low speed fan air versus 100 mile an hour plus uh, on a racing track that we don't do. All right, look, Stefan, I know that you have other commitments today, so I want to respect your time. We'll, we'll finish off the interview there, but uh, thank you for giving us a little bit more insight into the car, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you come up with next season. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.